Okay. All right, we're in 1 Thessalonians 2. We'll read verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though, as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you'd become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would, his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, so you'll see you've got an outline. It's kind of a long outline, and sometimes it's going to feel a little lopsided. There's going to be some points on our outline that we basically read the verse, and that's all we really need to say about it. It's just really self-evident. There's others that we're going to spend a little bit more time developing. So... Just tell you that so you don't, uh, hopefully it's not because I've skipped a page or something, if there's only a little bit on a point. Okay, so the first point is ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. The blank there is gospel. We want to engage people with the gospel. Our ministry must be first and foremost about that. What else is there to put first and foremost before others? So that first point um, has three sub-points. We're going to look at three fundamentals of gospel-engaging ministry that we see just in those first two verses. So the first one is that gospel ministry is never found hollow or found wanting. That's what Paul said in verse 1. He said, Brethren, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. And vain means hollow. It means empty. It means it's found wanting in purpose. It's found wanting in earnestness. Paul's saying our time with you was not marked by emptiness. It was marked by fullness. Why? Because we spoke the gospel to you. Paul was gospel-centered, and he had a gospel-centered ministry. So true gospel ministry isn't hollow. It's not wanting. And now you'll see on your outline throughout here there's some questions. And I want to encourage you to go back and look at those later and uh, give those some thought. They are convicting questions for me personally. Um, but, but they will help us grow in being more gospel-centered. Okay, so the first question is, what would happen to your ministry if the gospel is not central in your relationships? Paul says that when he came, it wasn't in vain. It wasn't empty. And that's because he was gospel-centered. So what's going to happen if the gospel is not central? What would our relationships be? They'd be empty. 
it'd be hollow. And um, I'm guilty of that. I've got some relationships where I just, for whatever reason, not bothered to get around to the gospel. The second fundamental of a gospel-engaging ministry is that the gospel ministry requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. It requires boldness. And this takes us to first of what we're going to call sandwiches this morning. It's kind of neat how Paul does this. By sandwich, what I mean is that we'll see at the beginning of the verse, kind of like a top piece of bread. And then at the end of the verse, it's sort of a bottom piece of bread. And those pieces of bread are kind of saying the same thing. And in the middle, there's the meat. And that's a, a, a nugget of truth or something that we really want to make sure we don't miss. So in verse 2... Um, we see that begins where he says we've, we, were, we have already suffered and been, and been mistreated, and then he ends with talking about much opposition. So being suffered or suffering and being mistreated and much opposition are kind of the same idea. But then in the middle, he says we have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. So here's the fundamental truth. Gospel ministry requires boldness to speak even though we might be surrounded by opposition, right? Okay, back in Acts 16 and 17, when Paul was in Philippi, a girl was bringing her slave master a lot of money because she was demon-possessed and she could tell fortunes. But Paul put an end to that by driving out the demon, and they didn't like that, and so they beat him and they threw him in jail. And uh, there was an earthquake, and the guard who was guarding them was about ready to kill himself, but then he ends up getting saved, and Paul's beaten with rods without even a formal hearing as a Roman citizen. And so the Philippians want him to leave town. So he's just had one thing after another. And then he gets to Thessalonica, and he encounters much opposition. But even with this kind of persecution, he spoke boldly. So a question, another question on your outline, how much trouble exists in your relationships because of the gospel? Or what might be some reasons for the absence of trouble? Again, this is really convicting because any trouble that exists in my relationships isn't usually because of the gospel. Any trouble that exists in my relationships is usually because of me, because of my sin. In fact, a lot of times, if we're having trouble with a relationship, especially in our household, it's probably because the gospel's not central. But think about, are there any places where you have conflict because of the gospel? There probably should be some. Now, we don't go out looking for it. We don't want to go out and stir up some conflict just so we can be proud that we stir up conflict. But if we're living out the gospel and we're proclaiming it, we're probably going to have some opposition, don't you think? At some point, that's going to happen. We live in a dark world. So it's just going to be good to give that some thought. Okay, another question. What happens when opposition comes in your gospel ministry or because of the gospel? What should we do? Or how should we respond when opposition comes? Are we handling that in a gospel-centered way? Again, just a good thing to be thinking about, to be prepared for. The third fundamental in gospel-engaging ministry is that gospel ministry finds its boldness in God alone. Verse 2, Paul said, We had boldness in our God. 
And that word boldness just literally means all speech. And this word boldness is only used in the New Testament in a gospel proclamation setting. It's saying that the gospel just flowed freely from Paul. He could speak the gospel with confidence regardless of the situation or the opposition or the mistreatment that he was enduring. Paul's attitude was that he could just confidently and boldly let the gospel message flow. And that boldness is in our God. It's not in ourselves, thankfully. And that's what verse 2 says. Did you see that? He says we have boldness and it's in our God. This isn't a natural natural ability to be bold. It wasn't Paul's bold personality. This freeness of speech that he had was in his God. There was such a union between Paul and his God, our God, that he was just ready to speak it. And so he did. But now remember, he's surrounded by opposition. You know, I'm pretty sure that in that situation, I would be tempted to maybe not say anything or maybe codify a little, be relevant, be a little more PC. But that's not what Paul did because conflict or comfort, his circumstances are not impacting his speech did. What impacts his speech? God. God is who impacts Paul's speech. He has boldness, and it's not in his situation. It's not the lack of conflict or the presence of conflict. It's always in his God. Okay, another question for you. What needs to happen daily to increase your God-given boldness to speak the gospel? Do any of our Wellspring disciplines come to mind? Maybe discipline one? Shepherding our hearts to be near our God, to walk near to him, because the more we are aware of him, the less concerned we are with the opposition. And, you know, I, this, this, that point really encouraged me, because as I was preparing this lesson, I'm just thinking, oh, Lord, I have so far to go. I have so far to go. There are so many people who are so much more faithful with these things than I am, and this is, you know, this is really convicting. And thankfully, we talk a lot about the gospel, and so the Lord encouraged me with the gospel that if I can't do it, that's good, because that means that I get to watch and see what through his gospel he wants to do in my life and and change in me. But he also reminded me, you guys know, a couple weeks ago I went to my grandma's funeral, and I got to go with my aunt, um, and she's not a believer. And she knows she's not a believer. She doesn't want to be a believer. And um, I had a lot of opportunities to serve her, which was just a blessing, and to love her. And I got to, I talked to her some about the gospel on the way out there, on the airplane. And uh, on the way home, we were tired, and she was sick. And I was sitting there, and I was doing my crochet or reading my book or something. And I just thought, Lord... I so don't want to talk to her about the gospel. <laughs> I just really don't, you know? Like, we're just having a nice trip, and everything's really peaceful and great. And, and then I was just so thankful that he just laid on my heart to recognize that, you know, I could be silent today, and tomorrow I will be sorry. And I even thought about that, you know, we can be silent right now, 
And when we get to heaven, there's not going to be anybody that we can talk to about the gospel who doesn't already love it. That's something that's unique about where we are right now, is we actually get to talk about our Savior to people who don't already know him. Um, So it's a privilege, and um, he's faithful. He will help you, even when you're sitting there thinking, I don't want to say anything, and I don't know what to say, and it's going to be hard, and they're not going to want to hear it. You know, you might be right, and just give yourself to him. He'll open your mouth and help you know what to say. Okay, so that takes us to Roman number two, Roman numeral two, second gospel-centered truth for ministry. In gospel-centered ministry, God himself is central. And there are at least seven ways that we see that just in verses two through six. The first way we see that God is central. Oh, by the way, I did talk to my aunt, and it was really great. God just gave words, and she got to hear the gospel, and she it was clear she didn't love the gospel, but it was also really clear that she could see that I was sharing it because I loved her. And so that was just huge. God's brought me a long way because there's been plenty of times I've shared it and the love hasn't been very obvious either. So, like, I'm going to share this with you if it kills me. But we're going to see today that that's not gospel ministry. That's not the goal. Okay. So the first way we see that God is central is that God is the origin of our message and our mission. We saw the start of it in verse 2 where he said, We have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. So our boldness comes from God and our message comes from God. Paul says he spoke the gospel of God. And then verse 3 states it negatively. Paul says, Let me tell you what our exhortation does not originate from. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Down in verse 6, then, you can see that ministry also comes from God. Paul describes himself in verse 6 as an apostle of Christ. His mission as an apostle doesn't come from himself. He's not an apostle of his own ideas. He is an apostle of Christ. Because God is central in gospel-centered ministry, our message originates from him and our mission originates from him, just like it did for Paul. Now, Paul was an apostle of Christ. An apostle means a sent one. And we're sent ones, too. Not in the same capital A kind of apostle way that Paul was, but we are still apostles in a lowercase a sort of way, that we are sent to be ministers of the gospel. And it can mean out there somewhere, going where the gospel's never gone, like Paul did, But it also always means everything else we're doing. It is our home, and it is our campus, and it is our workplace, and wherever else God puts you. Now, the second way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry is that God purifies our exhortations. He purifies them. Verse 3 says, for our exhortation, so that means whether Paul needed to encourage or he needed to admonish, his exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. His message was the truth, and his life was pure, and his ministry was honest. It didn't have hypocrisy. He didn't have deception. He wasn't motivated by anything other than the gospel. And if our lives are going to be gospel-centered and our ministries are going to be gospel-centered, then this must be true of us too. True words, pure lives, and gospel-centered motives. Now the third way we see that God is central 
in gospel-centered ministry is that he tests us to entrust us with the gospel. God tests us to entrust us with the gospel. Now that sounds a little scary, but let's talk about what it means. Verse 4 says, But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Now at the beginning of the verse is the verb have been approved. And at the end of the verse is another verb examine. And they're actually the same Greek word. And so it's another sandwich. The same idea at the beginning of the verse as you have at the end of the verse. So that's the bread, right? Um, This idea of being approved or tested, and there's going to be some meat in the middle. Um, So this idea of being examined or approved, it's the same word in the Greek. It's it's this idea of testing. And it was the um, word used for purifying metal. It's to purify for the purpose of refining. A piece of metal would be heated up over a fire, and as it boiled, all the dross all the worthless scum, all the impurities would rise to the surface where they'd be skimmed off. And they would just continue to heat that metal and continue to uh, skim off the impurities until the one refining it could look into that metal and see a clear reflection of himself. And that's how he knew it was pure, that they were done. And so the idea with this word approve or to examine is not the idea of testing us, just for revealing our failures. It's not just for that. The metal wasn't put to the fire because it was bad metal. Um, It wasn't put to the fire to destroy it. It was put to the fire to purify it. And so in the same way, God examines us for the purpose of getting rid of our impurities, to purify us so that his reflection is seen in us. And that's an ongoing process. Now, it's a positive testing, but is it pleasant? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It can be very, very painful. But it's not for the purpose of destroying us. It's for the purpose of purifying us so that we can be more like Christ. It's very, it is a very loving thing that the Lord does even though it may not feel like it at the time. So Paul is saying, I am a man whom God has examined and who continues to be purified by God. He lives as a man who knows that God is the one who examines his heart. So that's the bread, this idea of being refined or approved or tested. Now what's going on in between that examination? Look at where verse 4 says, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. As believers, we have been entrusted with the gospel. So we too must live as women who know that God examines our hearts. And how do we live that way? What else is there? It's shepherding our own hearts. We've been entrusted with the gospel, and that's why we preach it first and most to our own hearts. That's what prepares us to endure the refining and to benefit from God's refining of us so that we are more and more fruitful as ministers of that gospel. At home, at work, in your small group, everywhere. 
Okay, that brings us to the fourth way that God is central in gospel ministry, and that is that God opens my mouth. In verse verse 4, Paul says, And we've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. If God is influencing us, we can't be silent, and we won't be silent. We will open our mouths, and we will speak. Okay, number five, the next way that God is central in gospel-centered ministry is that God is the primary audience. We saw it already in verse four when Paul said, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Then again in verse five, he said, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. And then he says it again down in verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God. Paul had this awareness that God was present just as much as he was aware of his audience, the uh, people who were watching. God is the primary audience in Paul's ministry, and he's the primary audience in any gospel-centered ministry. And he is ultimately the only audience that matters. So what's the next way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry? Well, number six, God drops my mask in ministry. He drops my mask. Verse five says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Paul was sincere. He didn't flatter. He wasn't manipulative. He wasn't trying to get something. And he wasn't trying to hide anything either. And he didn't come with a pretext for greed. This idea with pretext is to put on a mask. Um, It's the idea that I'm, I'm covering something up in order to satisfy my greed. Now, maybe our greed isn't necessarily for money. But it could be a greed for approval or acceptance or influence, control compliments, praise. But the gospel calls us and enables us to drop those masks, to drop the self-serving, to drop the self-grasping, and just to please the Lord and to have genuine concern for others instead of ourselves. Again, it's about our heart. It's about our motive. And the seventh way, then, that we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry is that God humbles my use of authority. He humbles my use of authority. Now, remember, we already said that God is the primary audience in gospel-centered ministry. Paul said, God is my witness. God is my audience. He's the only audience that matters. And because of that, if I have any authority as a messenger giving the message of the gospel... It's not about me being noticed. God is the primary audience. In verse 6, Paul said, we did, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. They had an authority, a weight, being apostles of Christ. Here's Paul, who has seen the risen Lord, and yet he knew it wasn't about his authority. Because God was central in Paul's ministry, he didn't use his authority in a way that would have lorded it over anyone. Now, here's a statement in your notes. I think it's from Scott. 
any authority I might possess in ministry or anywhere is not about me. Authority in ministry is always to be exercised under the approval, pleasure, and witness of God. Our first resort in ministry must not be the exertion of authority for authority's sake. Again, it's about heart. It's about our heart. Authority is good. It's God-given. And when we're in a role of authority, we need to exercise that authority. But we must do it with humility and gentleness for the benefit of others, not ourselves. If you're a mom, that's going to apply to your parenting. In fact, if you have any role of authority, there's a phrase Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 13.10 that's really helpful. He says the Lord gave him authority for building up, not for tearing down. The gospel compels us to use authority the way Jesus did. He's our greatest example. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That's right. He's the one with all authority, and he's the one who took on the form of a bondservant, a slave. He was in the form of God, and he took on the form of a slave. That's what authority is supposed to do. That's what God does. That's who God is. He is humble. And when he saves sinners and draws us to himself and sends us out in his name, we are to be humble as well. Okay, that brings us to Roman numeral three, and we'll be moving through these remaining points a little bit more quickly. And I think we're making good time, so we're going to just keep going. We'll take our break in between our um, the teaching and the discussion group. All right, so that uh, brings us to our third gospel-centered truth, Roman numeral three. A gospel-centered ministry is characterized by a motherly gentleness. That's in verse seven. Motherly gentleness. Verse 7 reads, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Now the verse starts off with the word but, meaning this is a contrast. Remember, the last verse talked about authority. But rather than men who might have thrown their weight around, they were gentle, like a tender nursing mother. A mother comes down to the level of her child, or she brings the child up to her level. A baby is helpless, but a nursing mother picks up that baby and makes herself available to him. And Paul says, we were like that with you. We made ourselves available to you. We met you where you were. Now in the outline, there's a quote from John Calvin. It says, a mother in nursing her children manifests a certain rare and wonderful affection inasmuch as she spares no labor and trouble, shuns no anxiety, is never wearied out by her constant diligence and attention. Now, he's not talking about fatigue here. What he means is that she never quits. So a mother makes herself available in the sweetest, most tender, loving way. For moms, it means being available to our kids. We humble ourselves, and we remember our own struggle with sin. And we remember what Christ has done for us, and we confess sin when we sin against them. 
we don't attack them. Rather, we come alongside them. And we bring the gospel to them like a gentle, tender mother. The gospel is the milk that they need. It's what nourishes us. And it's what others need for nourishment, too. So another question from your outline. How well do you step into others' lives to build them up? Are there any new believers in your life whom you can nurture? You know, as our body grows, it can be really tempting to want to hang on really tightly to the relationships with people that we've had for a long time. And that's good. We want to keep those relationships strong. We are, we are the body of Christ together. But there are also new women coming in the door all the time. And some of them are new to the church, and some are new to the Lord. And we want to be those welcoming mothers to them, to welcome them in and help them be nourished with the gospel and meet them where they are. And I know that many, many, maybe all of you are doing that. But I just know that's something I need to keep in front of me. It's easy for me to come in and sit in my seat and look across the gym and see a whole bunch of people I don't even know. And I just didn't put myself in a place to even find it, to, to meet them, to get to know them. So just a good thing to keep in front of us. The fourth gospel-centered truth is that a gospel-centered ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection for people. Look at verse 8. It's another sandwich. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So what's the bread? How does the verse start? He has fond affection for them. And then it ends by saying that they were very dear to him. See how both parts, again, are kind of saying the same thing? But what's in the middle? This is the meat. He says, we were well pleased to impart the gospel and our lives. So for the bread, he said, you're dear to us. We loved you. Now, remember, Paul didn't even know these people before he got there. But as he ministered in Thessalonica, the gospel produced in him a love and affection for them. Now, take a look back again at verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. Watch and just remember how Paul said the gospel came in those verses. He said, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Paul was relentless. He had an intensity about him that just didn't quit. He was bold in the proclamation of the gospel. But then we get down to verse 8, and we see he has this fond affection. Paul says, you became so dear to us, we wanted to impart to you not only the gospel, we wanted to give you ourselves, we wanted to give you our lives. So boldness and affection go together. There's gospel content and there's gospel care, personal involvement. And we need to give both. That's the meat in our sandwich. That's what comes out of affection for those to whom you minister. Our goal is to give people the gospel. But that's never disconnected from caring for people. And we have to watch ourselves because we all probably tend toward one or the other. We might favor one to the exclusion of the other. Some of us, or at times, maybe these can both be us depending on the situation, we can be very focused on, being, on giving out the gospel. 
without necessarily being concerned with how we give it out. You're going to know the contents of the gospel when I'm done here, you know, whether you like it or not. But that's not how Paul was. Or we might get more focused on the relational side. We might be more inclined to think, you know what, I just need to build a really strong relationship and I need to show them the love of Christ and um, just never get around to actually talking about the gospel. And that wasn't Paul either. It's both. We give the gospel and we give ourselves. We impart our lives. We work to do both of these, to join the gospel content and gospel care together. They need to be inseparable. So that brings us to another question on the outline. How is our effectiveness with the gospel impacted by the level or absence of affection for others? Is it easier for you to bring the gospel to people you do have an affection for? It will be if we have a gospel-driven affection for them. And that kind of affection will impact what we say and how we say it. So hold on to these two facets of gospel ministry, gospel content and gospel care. We don't want to sacrifice one for the other, but rather bring them together so that there's no distance between them, so that they happen simultaneously as we care for others. We can't be content to have one without the other. So our fifth gospel-centered truth is that a gospel-centered ministry keeps the path to the gospel clear. That's in verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. His main point is that we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. But then he's saying, remember, there was labor and hardship. We worked night and day. Well, why? We didn't want to burden you. Now, he's probably talking about a financial burden. As a frontier missionary, Paul is the first Christian stepping into these areas with the gospel. Most often in those settings, Paul's practice was not to take any money um, from the new believers. As they became established and, and the church got built up and they wanted to give to him, then he usually would receive their gifts. But at this point in Thessalonica, he didn't accept any financial assistance because he didn't want any obstacles to the gospel. He wanted a clear path for bringing them the gospel. And to do that, they had lots of labor and hardship. In fact, they worked night and day. Now, why does he say night and day? Why doesn't he say day and night? Well, the thought is that probably they would begin their labors either very, very early in the morning or maybe halfway through the night so they could work into part of the day And then they could be finished and have the rest of the day to minister the gospel. They probably didn't sleep a whole lot. But they did that to keep the path clear. He didn't want them to feel a burden. And there are times when we're ministering to others when we will need to make sacrifices in order to make a clear path for the gospel. So here's a question for you. One way we could apply this. Can you recall how an older, wiser believer personally made sacrifices so you could keep growing in the gospel? For whom will you seek to do the same? Now I have to tell you that first question, 
I, I think it's kind of like, I think back and I'm like, I don't know. And I know there were people, and I know I just have no idea of the sacrifice that they made. Kind of like I don't really have any idea what my parents did, you know, for me. I was just there, and they fed me. That's what parents do, right? You know? But um, I really like that second question. For whom will you do the same? Be that one who's willing to make whatever sacrifice it takes to help somebody hear the gospel, to help somebody grow in the gospel. So you can start to pray that you would be that older, wiser Christian woman who comes alongside another woman who's younger in her faith. Pray for wisdom to see how you can remove any obstacle that would hinder her growth. And I, you know, this is just a place, a little aside. I want to tell you, I am so encouraged. And I know your discussion leaders are so encouraged. When we look at your assignments, um, you ladies, praise God, it is so evident that the gospel is at work in you. You do obviously have hearts for your home and hearts to care for others and, you know, specific names written down of people that you want to be this for. So I just praise God for that. There definitely is as much evidence of his grace among you. Okay, so this is our last gospel-centered truth. The sixth one is from verses 10 through 12. A gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life that is worthy of God. Gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life that is worthy of God. And that takes us to our last sandwich. And this time the sandwich is between verses 10 and 12. 10 is the top piece of bread. Um, 12 is the bottom piece, and they're similar. Verse 11 is the meat. It's what's in the middle that we want to be sure we don't miss. So what's verse 10 about? It says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. He's saying we were godly people. We lived our lives according to a right standard. We were above reproach. No charges could stick to us. And now whose life is Paul describing in verse 10? He's describing his own, right? The quality of life that Paul himself had was above reproach. He, he lived devoutly and blamelessly and uprightly. And then in verse 12, whose life is under consideration? Well, it's not Paul, but it's the Thessalonians. It says so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So in verse 10, we have the messengers, the sent ones that have transformed life. And then in verse 12, the ones to whom they came, those who believed, what must they have? A transformed life. So gospel ministry is all about changed lives transformation of life, life on life with the gospel so that our changed lives are laboring for changes in others' lives. It has to be. It's not gospel-centered ministry if it's not interested in transformation of life. So those are the two pieces of bread. Now what's going on in verse 11? It says we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring you is imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Now that is a fatherly pursuit. That is what Paul sandwiched in between transformation of life. He says, we had a fatherly pursuit of your changed life. So the primary goal of gospel-centered ministry is changed life. And the way Paul describes the way he went after changed lives is by comparing himself 
to a father, like a father goes after his own children. Paul's emphasis here is on individuals. In verse 11, he says, each one of you, and that's actually in the sentence structure in an emphatic position. It shows us that Paul's primary ministry, as he's thinking back on it, is not what happened in mass conversions. Now, they may have been able to speak publicly. They may have spoken to great numbers of people. But what Paul is remembering is that he had spent time with each one of them. Like a father spends time with each one of his children. A father needs to shepherd his children, each one of them, in a unique way, according to the need of the moment. Sometimes, verse 11, it's an exhortation. Sometimes it's a more gentle encouragement. And other times it's a father imploring his children with the gospel, his child. And then he also says something really similar over in chapter 5, verse 14. Go ahead and just turn the page and look at that with me. In in 514 now, he's teaching them to do the same thing that he did for them. He says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. We need to have an individualized, personalized approach in each relationship. For example, unruly people need to be warned. They don't need a soft, cuddly encouragement. But we don't want to admonish someone who's faint-hearted, and we need to know the difference. It takes prayer, it takes time together, it takes careful listening, so we understand what's going on in each other's lives. We might first think, boy, she is unruly, she needs a warning. But then we take time, and we ask questions, and we listen we may begin to realize that with what's going on, it's amazing that she's still standing and that, oh no, she doesn't need admonishment. She needs encouragement. She needs help. And a lot of times we'll find that we need to be giving out both. We need to be giving out a number of things because there are a number of things going on in all of us. Now, I want to talk for a minute just about that word need That word need is just a word we need to be really careful about, careful about what we mean by that. When we talk about a need, talking about our need or anybody else's needs, that needs to not be something that we're basing on our feelings or what we think we have a right to, what we want. Rather, when we think of needs, as in what does this person need, we should rather um, think along the lines of Ephesians 4.29. And it it says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. That means building up according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. So it will give grace to those who hear. So when we think about needs, we need to be thinking about how to give God's grace to someone so that they're built up in the faith. It's going after that transformation of life that Paul was so concerned with. That is the need that we are to be concerned with first, and first and most. And then how we deliver that grace, whether it's an admonishment for the unruly, 
or an encouragement for the faint-hearted or as help for the weak. That's determined according to the need of the moment. So gospel-centered ministry will always have a personal component. That's how we help one another grow in sanctification. Now, look at verse 12 again. It says, So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, we're going to come back and finish with that verse, but before we leave it for a minute, I want you to look and see what does God do in this verse. It says, He calls you. Now, the emphasis here is not on when God called you in the past tense as in the sense of your conversion. God calls you in the present tense means God is continuing to call you into his own kingdom. It's true. God already transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now he is continually calling us into greater and greater realizations of his kingdom reign in our lives. It's like when you take a walk with little kids. You know, their little legs just aren't as long as yours. And they like to stop and look at stuff. And then they get tired. And so if you're taking a walk, you may find yourself turning around saying, come on, come on, let's go. When Scott taught this in Bill, somebody chimed in saying, let's go, slowpoke. But thankfully, God doesn't call us slowpoke. But that's how God calls us. He says, come on, come on. He's tenderly calling us like a father saying, I have more for you. There's more you need to know. There's more you need to experience um, of my kingdom reign in your life. We have a God who's walking with us, who's continually with us. He's not done with us. And we must still be called into greater and greater alignment with his will. And he won't stop until he's done. That's how great our God is. Okay, so let's, let's figure out what our conclusion is. What is the bigger picture of gospel-centered ministry? If we had to sum it all up, what would we say? Well, here it is. This is the inseparable combination in gospel-centered ministry. Number one, it's proclamation. If we're going to have a gospel-centered ministry, we've got to be about the proclamation of the gospel. We have to be. And then number two, down below, underneath those references, you can write down two words, incarnation or demonstration. Two ways to say the same thing, incarnation and demonstration. Now, we need to qualify what we mean when we use the word incarnation in particular or demonstration because there's a trend in the church community right now to use those words a lot. And that's not bad, but it's just not always clear what's meant. So we have to um, be sure we understand what's being said. But when we use these terms, we're just talking about what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2. Paul was all about proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming the gospel. You see it in all those references in your outline. He says, our gospel came to you in word. They received the word. The word of the Lord sounded forth from you. We speak the gospel. We were entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. And then he states it negatively in chapter 2, verse 5. We didn't come with flattering speech. And then 2.8, again, we imparted to you not only the gospel, but our lives. We proclaimed the gospel of God. Paul was very much about 
the proclamation of the gospel. Gospel-centered ministry is going to make believers open their mouths and actually proclaim Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. And a gospel ministry is not going to stop there. If you learn anything from 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 is that Paul didn't come in word only. We have to partner the word being proclaimed with the word being demonstrated, with it being lived out. That's the second point of our conclusion. Paul equally emphasized life-on-life ministry. His gospel ministry was all about our life engaging with one another. Again, the references are in your outline. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. You became imitators of us. You became an example. We were gentle among you. We imparted to you our own lives. You are our witnesses how we behaved among you. We were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you like a father. It's clear from 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 that gospel-centered ministry means we open our mouths and proclaim the word of God, and it means that we're concerned with engaging with one another's lives. We must connect our lives to others. That's what we mean by demonstration or incarnation. Paul did that in a profound way, in an intentional way. And the greatest example of all is Jesus. He's the greatest proclaimer and the greatest demonstrator ever, right? Nobody will ever get closer to us than Jesus has. Okay, well, we said we'd come back and wrap up with 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12. So look there again. It starts with the words, so that. There's a conclusion here. This verse gives the whole reason why Paul did what he did. It's why he was so concerned both to proclaim and to demonstrate. It's why he did all the things we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 last time. He was concerned to have the right message. He, was, he wanted to be an uncommon messenger, to be imitatable, to be effective, to be received, to labor for repentance. And it's why we, his ministry was concerned with all the things we've looked at today in chapter 2. It's why he was concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. Why God was central in his ministry. It's why he had motherly gentleness and deep affection for people. It's why he was willing to sacrifice and take on hardship. It's why he labored for transformed lives. And here it is. Here's why he did what he did. Verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That is the result of the gospel. That is why God, in his holiness and love, provided a way through his Son for sinners to be reconciled to himself. That is the power of the gospel. It transforms God-haters into those who walk worthy of him. And we participate in God's gospel transformation in our lives by shepherding our hearts with the gospel, with God's word, so that we can be a servant, actually a slave, of that gospel in our homes and in our churches and in the world. 
Let's pray. Oh Lord, I, I, I hear what you have for us in your word, looking at Paul's ministry and Paul's life. And Lord, if I didn't know that you were faithful to finish the work you've begun in, in us, I would just be in despair. But we just thank you from the bottom of our hearts that the grace that was purchased for us at the cross to save us is the very same grace that will accomplish this in our lives. Father, help us to be women who rest in your finished work and at the same time earnestly pursue you and pursue being those who walk worthy of you. Lord God, thank you that you are a God who has called us and who continually calls us. Lord, you are a God who wants to exercise more of your kingdom reign in our lives to show more of yourself to us. And Lord, we are encouraged that as you have helped us understand more and more of your word and of your gospel this year and of what it means to bring our hearts before you so that you can shepherd us, Lord, that you are at work and you are changing us and you are transforming us. And we can have hope that that you will accomplish this in us too, Lord. Help us to be diligent to pursue being the kind of ministers of your gospel that you want us to be, that give you glory, that make much of your Son. Lord, I also just pray for um, your hand on our discussion groups. I pray that our discussions would be vibrant, that, Lord, we all would be eager to share what you've shown us, that we would be good listeners and benefit from one another, that every one of us would be encouraged and motivated to walk out of here today eager to serve you and make you known. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. couple things to talk about before we do our before we do a break and then we'll do our discussion groups but um our next time is in three weeks april 9th and that will be our last wellspring we will meet at 6 30 and as far as we know we'll still be in this room there's a place where you can sign up to bring something um the men from build will be here for, with us because scott maxwell will teach us about the church vision, the vision of Grace Bible Church, which will be really nice because it will give kind of an umbrella over the disciplines we've been talking about all year and help you understand how those tie together with who we are as Grace Bible Church. Um, Okay. You got lots of pieces of paper today when you came in. Um, first of all, pull out the one that says questions for reflection and identifying evidence of God's grace in your life through Wellspring. There is some overlap between this one and the one that says evaluation for Wellspring, but the, our desire in giving this one to you is hopefully that you'll be very encouraged by seeing evidence of God's grace in your life as you look back at that wellspring purpose and all the disciplines and prayerfully just ask the Lord, Lord, show me how you have changed me. Um, you, may, you may not answer every question on here, but take some time to think and pray and, and look over it tonight before you go to bed so you can kind of be just ruminating on it. Um, over the next few weeks um, and be ready to write some things down before we come back together. Because after Scott teaches us 
um, on the 9th, then we'll probably have about an hour together to share. And, and this, what you write down on here would be a, a great place for you to share from as we just share with one another um, ways we've been encouraged, ways that we see, have seen God work, things we've learned, ways we're applying it, that kind of thing. And I would like you to turn that in just primarily because it's going to help me. Um, I think it will encourage me. It'll, it'll be helpful for me in um, seeing what fruit God has brought this year. But I will give it back to you. We won't meet again for Wellspring, but I'll give it back to you at church or mail it to you or something like that. This other one, evaluation for Wellspring, there's some overlap. Some of the questions are similar, but this one is one you'll, you'll give to me on the 9th, but I'll actually keep them, and we'll use that for helping us um, improve Wellspring and making decisions about Wellspring for next year. So any constructive feedback you can give us would be so helpful. Um, be sure you notice on the third page that there um, are some opportunities for you to express an, in- an interest and a willingness to be to participate in a more um, formal way in the ministries of Wellspring. In particular, uh, the Wednesday Wellspring, you know, has been is different than ours because there's a, a program for the children there, and um, I think that the role for the room leaders has probably been as big of a commitment as the role for teaching the women. Um, those have been some big commitments, and the ladies who've done that this year have really set a great foundation and they have a lot of materials that they could hand off to someone who could lead this year. But especially as women who've gone through Wellspring this year, um, it'd just be good to pray about. Many of us don't have a schedule where we could do that. But if you do have a schedule, or if you have an interest, start praying that God might open up your schedule to be able to minister in that way. Um, And if it's not you, then that's good. Just pray that God would provide the right people for that because the Wednesday ministry is really dependent on that. Um, but it just I just love to hear your heart. Where Where is God kind of giving you an interest in serving and ministering? And it just may be to be more involved and intentional in, in ministry of your home. That's that's awesome if that's where you're living this out. Um, we're, all, we're all called to be living it out there. Um, as far as next year goes, nothing's in stone, but tentatively it will probably be a lot like it was this year. Um, our hope is to, again, have a midweek um, group with the child children's program, and also to have a Saturday group. Um, just thought, I sat down. I was really surprised. I sat down last Saturday because we have over a hundred women who registered for Wellspring this year, and I sat down and made a list of women who um, who aren't in Wellspring, just off the top of my head. And this doesn't include a lot of new people who I don't even know their names for. There were over 30 names that came up of women who who weren't in Wellspring. So I think a lot of those are new to the church. Um, or just because Wellspring came up so much at the last minute, weren't able to participate this year. But Wellspring is also, let me just help you think about whether or not you would participate next year. For a lot of us, um, we came into Wellspring being really new to the faith. The idea of reading our Bible every day was new. And you have made progress. You know, you're now reading a couple days a week. Praise God. That's awesome. If you were not reading before and now you're reading some, that's awesome. That's fruit. That's God at work in your life. And you should be encouraged. And coming back to Wellspring again next year may be the perfect way for you to continue to grow in that, to continue to be encouraged, to persevere in that pursuit of Christ, of bringing your heart before God, and then taking that shepherded heart to others in your home and in your ministry and everywhere that you um, that you are. Um, 
Others of us came into Wellspring um, maybe kind of getting the idea of shepherding our heart or at least being in the word. Um, And maybe I thought I did when I came in, but I feel like I've just scratched the surface and I can't wait to do it again because I just want these lessons to go deeper and deeper and deeper into my heart and to be more and more the first thought I have when I'm with other people. Um, and so if that's you and, and you just want to continue for that to go deeper and, and maybe you want to be here as one of those who will come alongside and encourage women who are just getting started at understanding how to shepherd their heart, then it would be awesome for you to go through Wellspring again as well. It may be that you have been here and you've heard these disciplines and you are excited about them and you know that God has for you to focus on living out these disciplines and cultivating these disciplines in a really intentional way in your home. And you need to be home. And you need to be with those kids and or or those roommates. And that's where you need to be pouring into. Um, and, and, and being here isn't the right place for you to be. That's not going to be, that maybe you decide that's not going to be helpful. Maybe it's a ministry outside of Wellspring, another ministry in church. You really want to pour into those women in your small group. And you want to start meeting with them. And you want to talk to them about the disciplines. You want to talk to them about their heart. And you want to talk to them about the gospel and how that transforms their lives. And that's where you're going to be investing in a, in a more intentional way with more time. Um, or, or our ministries outside the church. And so coming back to Wellspring isn't necessarily what God has for you. So you, you could be in any of those boats. If you're in a boat that I haven't thought of, you can tell me that too. Anyway, you could be in any of those boats. I would just encourage you to prayerfully consider what God has for you next year. The lessons will be essentially the same. The disciplines aren't changing. Um, by God's, you know, if God enables and leads, we hope to add some more lessons and, um, and definitely keep refining the lessons. But um, that's, that's kind of what that's all about. So I just appreciate you putting the time and effort, the homework that I, that I get to see, what an encouragement. I know that you ladies are really taking this seriously, that you love the gospel and you really want to be transformed by that gospel. So I hope you are as encouraged by that as I am.